Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the D-Hoop University podcast. This is your host, Daryl Harris, also known as D-Hoopster. And if you haven't caught on to the trend by now, I've been doing numerical shoutouts along the way on the pod, to which corresponds to whichever episode we're on. And 43, you might have thought, was a tough one. Well, actually, I do have one, and it's in line with the football of the day that we'll be talking about. And uh, Troy Palomalu, shout out, man. Shout out. Not many people have repped the 43 to the extent that Troy Palomalu has and has the legacy attached to it that he does. Shout out to USC. Shout out Pittsburgh. Anywho, we're talking football today because we had Monday Night Football this past Monday night, yesterday. (laughs) A lot happened, if you can't tell, between our last recording and now. We're going to recap fantasy, what happened, what were the impressions, takeaways from week one. We're going to mention some USA basketball, and we might even mention some wrestling before we get out of here. But, without further ado, folks, let's talk some fantasy. Casual diehard fantasy football league to start is uh, definitely up and running. We are one weekend. It was a busy, busy Sunday trying to keep up with four fantasy leagues. One was really, really, really on the back burner because it uses a different platform. But shout out to my guys who are running that league. Otherwise, we had a good week, folks. We, we pulled off um, two and one in the ESPN leagues and. Uh, We're not mad at that. The one loss came down to Monday Night Football. When we left you guys last time with Shiv and I, we said, hey, this week will not be determined until Monday because Monday we have the Jets and we have the Bills. That means we have Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, James Cook, Dalvin Cook, Garrett Wilson. All these guys' scores. Don't get me started on the defenses, man. We had all these guys to get through before we would have final scores across the board in leagues. And for me, it came down to Monday night in two leagues where I was hoping that my guys would hold on. And we did hold on in one league, so I'm not mad at that. The other league, not so fortunate. But the league we did hold on to was the Casual Diehard Fantasy League. So excited to be 1-0 in this league because... That is the one that we will be focusing on in the pod. That's the roster that I introduced you guys to last week. And shout out to Matt Raftery. Definitely had to sweat out what went down tonight in uh, Monday Night Football. Stephon Diggs dropped 26 in the league. But Josh Allen didn't help him. Because Josh, Josh Allen dropped a cool nine ball. Thanks to a negative eight in turnovers. He had three interceptions, lost a fumble. His first game with four turnovers since going back to 2019, which oddly enough happened also in week one, also against the Jets. Something told me to bet the Jets today, and I did. So uh, I'm not mad at that. (laughs) But I walked into today with about a 40-point lead in this league. Thanks in large to uh, the Jaguars holding it down, not Christian Kirk. (laughs) But the Jaguars held it down for me in this league. 
that being Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne. And yeah, that you know, that was my strategy going into the draft. I walked you guys through this last week and I'll uh get the big picture ones out of the way first before running down my roster, but yeah, so far so good. So far so good across the board. Feel good about all my scores. They were amongst the top in the leagues. I might have sent some smack talk to my news Ada bros today just because in week one of that 12 team league, there was only one, there was only two, three, okay, four. There were four teams that crack 100. A um, couple of them came down to tonight thanks to some defensive heroics. And <laughs> I said, shout out to everybody who made it over 100 points this week. You know, hey, tough week. I get it. <laughs> and that may come back to bite me in the butt later on. Not really tripping. One week at a time. This is fantasy. Let's have fun with it. But, man, it was a mixed bag. Mixed bag. We kind of can't go anywhere without mentioning the Dallas defense. The Dallas defense was impeccable against the Giants. I don't think I've ever seen 35. Ever. From a defense in fantasy. But Dallas's defense dropped 35 thanks to two tubs. They got two picks. A fumble recovery blocked a field goal. And by the way, they goose-egged the boys. And that's good for five points in and of itself. So, man, it was Dallas's defense Sunday night. And Monday night, it was the New York Jets defense, which just really, really, really showed up in a big spot against Buffalo. And we have to talk about that game a little bit. But... Aaron Rodgers, man, if you, if you saw the game for uh, 10 minutes, and I'm talking about a quick five minutes maybe, but uh, Aaron Rodgers, he got a couple snaps in in his new colors and his new jersey. I think he had a new number. And just like that, he was being carted off the – not carted off, but he was being helped off the field. Pretty clear that he couldn't bear weight on his – one of his foot, one of his feet, and um, uh, it should have kind of clicked in that moment. But I'm watching the react. I'm watching his reaction and how he's being helped off and trying to look at his gait, how his strides, how much weight bearing he is on either foot, and whether or not it looks like a tweak or whether or not it looks like he really hurt something. And having experience, man, I've lost count of lower body injuries there's a there's signs you you have signs for one you know in the moment when it happens it's sort of a blackout moment just personally you know when you hurt yourself or when when the injury happens and but you you feel something in that moment so either you feel a good pop a good tug a good like an irregular movement within your joint or you hear something which is not great either or you know a combination of the two when I broke my leg I heard it I felt it it blacked whenever I've severely sprained an ankle which I've torn ligaments in the ankle there's a difference as well versus oh it just rolled and uh, when I saw the Rogers thing he clearly 
didn't have confidence to put weight on it. And it wasn't that it was unbearable pain, but it was clear, clear, something's wrong. And that, that was sort of my reaction in the 10, 15, 20 minutes post-injury real time where I'm in the newsroom, we're talking, you know, amongst everybody and we're like, what's going on? You know, we're cracking jokes, you know, it's been five minutes, how's something wrong? You know, I'm like, hey, I think that looked like an old man injury. I don't know what it was, but it to me looks like he f- recognized something happened and if he could, you know, show signs of life he would but he can't i don't think he's being dramatic right now i think he's really trying to process hold on what the hell was that and it wasn't until after the game where the word achilles came out and it was in head coach robert Salas' post-game conference where he said he kept it blunt he kept it straight up he said yeah no it's not good and, um, we're, you know, we're going to check the MRI, but as of now, it's not good. And we, I saw the reporting of Achilles, and I said, duh, duh. And I hate that that was my reaction because I feel really bad for the man. But it, it kind of jumped out at me as, like, clearly I've heard this from – shout out to Terrell, man. Terrell's, you know, rehabbing a hand right now. Shout out to him. Much prayers. But we, he shared – stories with me about when he tore his Achilles and we saw that Kobe tore his Achilles we all know that and that's really the most referenceable one and it sort of happens and you just don't really know what happened but you feel it and then afterward you can't really you from my conversation with Terrell it was kind of like he explained it as a numbness and you just lose sensation. And it's like, what just happened to my foot? I lost my foot. It's tingly, you know, things like that. Um, And you sort of see the way he went down on that sack. There's a step or two where, you know, it, it looks like it just goes pretty sharply, you know, flexed around like heel tension. And I think there was maybe even a jolt in the calf if you, if you get the JFK, you know, Zapruder film version of the the replay but yeah man it's unfortunate you know these guys don't get preseasons I talked with Shiv like they used to I mean you know the the, the guys aren't really out there in preseason anymore and it, it's just hard to ramp up your body for for full contact 100 percent especially in football where, you know, you have these longer breaks. It's not basketball where you're up and down and you're only sitting when you're resting. It's not, you know, like, you know, all sports are different. But with this one, it's just you press and go, and that's not even to account for the human emotion. But that that's sort of the bigger, you know, variable in the pot is that your, your body's just so revved up and – adrenaline wise but your your body's also sort of cold you're going off of warm-ups and i don't know man freak accident man i mean rogers is pushing 40 and uh man it, it, it was unfortunate really wanted to get the chance to see what was going on there with him at quarterback but i have another thing and that was that zach wilson looked like he was progressing in the preseason i know preseason's a joke it's not a joke for franchises that are successful and 
at least to start off, all franchises in the NFL are trying to be successful out the gate. And I paid attention. I know, well, you know, we saw what happened with Kenny Pickett. He had a fantastic preseason, all this buzz, perfect passer rating. Week one, terrible. He also caught the 49ers. So we, we may have to give him some slack as, as the weeks progress. But Wilson had a pretty darn solid preseason. And now he's got this opportunity to sort of step up where there still is a ton of pieces around him. And let this bring me back to fantasy because guess who was fantastic tonight and rushed for over eight for over a hundred yards with not that many carries. That would be Brees Hall, somebody who I'm very proud to have rostered in a couple of leagues. Took him at around the fifth pick in most leagues, you know, 49 in the casual diehard league. And, you know, talked with Shiv on here last week and we both, you know, expressed how he felt it was sort of a reach and confusing. And I said, I know, I get it, but I, I'm sort of buying this guy's stock because in, as a rookie, he was him all the way until the injury. And it was just getting more and more clear as the weeks progressed and his confidence was building and he was the runaway offensive rookie of the year up until week seven when he got hurt last year. And in that game, he had damn near 100 yards on four touches and a touchdown to go along with it. And in his first game back from that injury, guess what? He had 127 yards on 10 carries. And he had a 20-yard catch for good measure. Brees Hall drops 15.7 at the running back spot when people thought he wasn't going to play week one. <laughs> so I'm happy to have taken him where I did. And my thought process into that was I'm going value because I did a bunch of mocks and from the early mock season where he was just projected to play and Dalvin cook wasn't on the roster. He was going in round two round three because his stock was high coming off this rookie season. And as things progressed and the question marks lingered and Dalvin Cook entered the mix, he started sliding because it was, well, we don't know. This is going to be a timeshare. This is going to be, eh, I wasn't buying it. I wasn't buying it. I didn't think Dalvin Cook had the juice that he has had in years past. And it's just a trend we've seen in running backs. It is what it is. But I felt like the two-headed monster that you could imagine as Brees Hall and Dalvin Cook. I felt like it was going to look like Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard from last season where, yeah, one guy has a role and one guy sort of has more reputation and a bigger cachet, but let's look at these runners. It's honestly not close. And there was concern about Brees Hall's injury status and health, but... I paid attention to the preseason reporting, and by all accounts, it was this guy looks ready to rock. We're just trying to take it steady. And by following that reporting, I confidently took him where I did, hoping that, hey, I'll even give you three or four weeks because I tripled down on running backs in the event somebody else got hurt. Just to have that reliable, you know, force on my roster and Brees Hall, who everybody was scared to touch. I'd love to find his ADP, and I'll try and do that before we get out of here. But 
Brees Hall was running back 11 in week one. PPR format. He was probably a little higher in non-PPR just because, you know, he didn't have gimme catches. He only had one catch. And if we're counting the yardage, he only lost one point on that. And I can fact check that in one second. But I feel good. I feel good that I took him. He sat on my bench, and guess what? He'll be ready to start whenever I need him because I'll also be running out the guys that I have right now, which are Kenneth Walker, ETN, and Derrick Henry. But we'll see because Kenneth Walker left the game sort of questionable. But I was prepared for this. I was prepared for this. I I loaded up. And my guys are are there to do this thing. While I'm talking about Kenneth Walker and the Seahawks, they really let me down because I had DK Metcalf next to him. And these guys were on the first half finish, and you felt like it was going to be a blowout. You would not have expected that neither one of them nor the team as a whole would do a damn thing in the second half. And that was because... Super Bowl Sean McVay and Aaron Donald and Matt Stafford came to play. So did a receiver by the name of Nico Kachua. I can't remember, <laughs> but this this guy from from the Rams just has a game, and yeah, man, we had a big upset in that one. Big upset. Blew a lot of tickets. Blew a lot of parlays. That was my parting words as well on the last episode was, hey, look at the underdogs week one. Things like this tend to happen frequently. And it certainly happened across the board for a couple of games. And uh, I was going to get his name right, Puka Nakua for the Rams. Yeah, he had a day. He had a big day. 10 catches, 119 yards for Matthew Stafford and the Rams. He's probably going to be one of the first guys off of waivers. So if you're in need of a receiver, there's nothing stopping this guy from proving he's him. They're going to give him tame projections going forward. But I don't think we should be writing the Rams off or expecting them to be bottom dwellers by any means. They do have the 49ers this week. So... I think we'll know pretty quickly whether or not our guy uh, Puka Nakua is here to play (laughs) because he's going against a top-notch defense next week, and we should probably, you know, temper those expectations. But, yeah, I had some Van Jefferson. He didn't do anything. I had some Tutu Atwell. He didn't do anything. Take that back. I do not have any Tutu Atwell. (laughs) And he actually did do something. He had 119 yards. But enough about the Rams. Elsewhere, let's go to quarterbacks. Quarterbacks was a really, really, really interesting situation week one because all the guys at the top were pretty darn bad, except for Patrick Mahomes. Good old Pat. This is what he does. That's why he went in the first round in multiple leagues that I'm in, including the casual diehard fantasy league. But our uh, our darlings of the draft – that being, you know, the Lamar Jacksons, the Joe Burrows, the even Jalen Hurts sort of had a mediocre performance, but 
emphasis on, you know, Josh Allen and Joe Burrow and Lamar for underperforming. These guys all finished in double digits. Joe Burrow dropped three points, which will probably never happen again in fantasy, given health. Lamar might have also posted his lowest for the season already. So I'm not, you know, down on those guys by any means. I, I do think that Burrow is going to have some lingering health issues. I don't think that his body's right. I, I don't think that his lower body specifically is 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 great. And that was why I, I wasn't drafting him. I didn't draft Jerry Judy because I said, hey, the, these these ligament issues, I'm not going into the season with that. And Burrow had the strained calf, you know, whatever it was, and before preseason week one. And he had enough time to sort of nurse that and be ready to go. But in that Cleveland game, the field was wet. You know, you got a, a great defense coming at you on the go a lot, under pressure a lot. You also saw Joe Burrow sort of rubbing the knee on the sideline. I paid attention to it, and yeah, he just didn't look right again. And, and I hate, I hate that as well. We hate injuries, but they're a thing. And fantasy wise, it, it's something that you really want to try to avoid. But if you did draft Burrow high, you're sort of stuck with him because you're not benching him, and he's not going to sit out these games. Quarterbacks can be managed throughout the week in football. And guess what? You got six days to, to get back to as strong as you can, plus whatever we're going to do to you in the pregame to get you ready to play. So Burrow's going to be out there. That guy's really tough. But I am concerned about the lower half durability for him for the rest of the season. Just something to keep an eye on. So, you know, there were six quarterbacks to get over 20 this week. Led by Tua Tagovailoa, went crazy against the Chargers. Part of that is it was the Chargers. And the Chargers have nice players on defense, but they play with tempo. They play with pace. And their home field advantage doesn't really exist. So you can sort of come in there and do whatever it is you're comfortable with. And they, that was the makings for a shootout. I bet the over in that game. And it was a high over. It might have been the highest one on the board all day. And guess what? It was the highest scoring game of the day. But, yeah, Tua went crazy. Mac Jones. Mac Jones had a really, really, really big second half. And who would have thought he finished at the top? Jordan Love. You bet your butt somebody's adding him off of waivers this this week. If not already on rosters. Because Green Bay has a darn good team. They have a darn good team and and don't really know the status of Aaron Jones. I do have him in another fantasy league. I had Aaron Jones last season. I'm a fan of Aaron Jones. I took him again this year in the same draft strategy as let me load up at running back, get one more than I can really even start just because guys are funny. And Aaron Jones in this league is actually the reason that this is the league that I dropped. It, it's my one of my work leagues. And I lost this league because I had Aaron Jones on the bench in favor of Kenneth Walker. And Kenneth Walker did not pop off. He was running really confidently and really, you know, like he was going to do something in the first half. But both tackles for Seattle were lost by the, you know, midway point of the game. And 
they just realized we can't block Aaron Donald and the whole team was spooked. So Pollard, I me mean for so Kenneth Walker finished in sync with six for me in this non in this uh, non PPR league, while Aaron Jones popped off for twenty four. So give me those points back, and I win because I lost this league by nine points, and it came down to Stephon Diggs having a great Monday night, James Cook not being bad either, and the Jets defense supplying twenty points. So I lost this league by nine. Came into the game with about a 20-something point lead. Was hoping that I could hold it. Couldn't. It is what it is. Would have held it had I not jumped the gun and just wanted some skin in the game Thursday night and played Sky Moore, who dropped point four for me. <laughs> or if I had Aaron Jones in there. So, you know, I'm still feeling good with the roster, but, you know, things like that happen. But back to the quarterbacks. You're going to probably want to have a backup almost regardless unless you know you're in a position where it's just hey if this guy's healthy there's no chance in hell I'm not playing him but I think across the board you got to sort of gamble with the quarterback position and, and, and look at guys like in that same non-PPR work league of mine I have Anthony Richardson at quarterback I didn't take one at all until I took Anthony Richardson at pick 116 I, I loaded the roster elsewhere. Went three. It's a three receiver league, so you know, did what I had to do, addressed other positions, and just said I'm confident in starting Anthony Richardson week one because I know he's a dual threat, and I watched him in the preseason. He's not the guy at quarterback that makes you scared for your team's future if he's your quarterback. You're looking at the game if he's your quarterback. Like, oh, you know what? I like this guy. He's got some areas maybe to, to smooth out, and, and, you know, he's only a rookie. He'll come along. But I feel good. This guy looks confident. For one, he's a freaking tank out there. And guess what? That That's what we got in week one. We got 200 passing yards. We got a touchdown through the air. We got 40 yards on the ground on 10 carries and a touchdown as well. So, yeah, Anthony Richardson, I think he's very startable. I took him, and I wanted to lean on that sword just to say I did because going into the season, I was like, I don't see why not. And, yeah, it panned out. He finished better than almost every quarterback that was drafted ahead of him because he went at the very bottom of drafts if he was drafted at all. So felt good about that one. Again, you can't put all your hopes into the projection. The projection is, you know, it's a good barometer of what should happen, of what might happen, of what they're calculating will happen. But at the end of the day, go with your gut, man. And if that means, hey, I'll take the L. If it's a slight L, you take the L. But that was a big deal. Receiver-wise, it's, you know, it's it can be frustrating because when you're playing fantasy, you just get big-eyed at the offense and the glitz and the glamour of it all. But you turn on your game and you're like, I can't wait till I see all these points translate and I should just, I want to see my guy running down the field left and right. And guess what? That only happens if you have Tyreek Hill. <laughs> sort of Justin Jefferson, which I do in one league, but receivers they were inconsistent 
And that's going to be the thing with receivers. You're going to get it week to week where the guys that have great games are a mix of, yeah, of course he did. Of course, Amon and Ross St. Brown scored a touchdown in his first game. Of course, you know, Justin Jefferson went off for, what was it, 150 yards? Of course he did that. And, you know, Stephon Diggs, I'm playing him. So, of course, he dropped 26 on me. <laughs> but, you know, every now and then you'll get the weeks where it doesn't happen. But on the flip, you did have guys sort of middle out. DK was on pace for a good game, finished with about 13. A.J. Brown, you know, he got you 14.9. Devontae Adams, he got you 12. Jalen Waddle, he got you 11. C.D. Lamb, the off the defense did all the work. He got you 12. You know, Jamar Chase, he got you 9. I told you guys, I wasn't doing the Chase thing. Me and Shiv got onto it last week, but I said, hey, is quarterbacks a question mark? I'm not doing that, dude. How can you? How can you depend on it? How can you depend? You know, he's a great talent and, you know, cream rises to the top, but I wasn't sold. And, and that's why I targeted running backs again because running backs are more of a sure thing than receivers. The best of the best are, are pretty close to a sure thing, but receivers are boomer bust by nature because it's script dependent. If, you know, you're, you have an offense like the Dolphins or like the Chargers or like Minnesota where it's just, hey, we're going we're gonna to let this thing fly. We're, we're moving the ball. We don't really care. A Buffalo, teams like that. Our quarterback doesn't care. He wants to throw it. And, you know, we're going to get guys involved. There's going to be high-scoring games or the fourth quarters are going to matter because we're trying to play catch-up or we're going, you know, tit-for-tat with the other team. You know, pace is a thing that you can't really account for in football as visibly as you can in the NFL or in the NBA. But you can. You know the offenses that are high octane, the Kansas Cities. Those teams sort of give you a floor for, for high caliber receivers. But other than that, man, it's a mixed bag. Really depends on what cornerbacks you're going up against. And it really just depends on, you know, sort of the, the other the other variables. You know, how good is your supporting cast? What's your quarterback play looking like? What's the weather like? You know, what's the other team's preferred style of play because that is how you narrow down opportunity and how much opportunity your guy will get to receive the ball and and you know put points on the board running back which that will bring that around to it's more of a sure thing guess what the running backs taken at the top of drafts almost all had great games talking austin eckler he dropped 26 like he does ppr format Christian McCaffrey, he dropped the cool 26 as well. Tony Pollard, who I'm a proud owner of on multiple rosters. Chuck, we'll talk about this later <laughs> because I don't have him in the casual diehard league. But Tony Pollard, two tubs, only 70 yards, but guess what? 22 fantasy points, RB5 for the week. Travis Etienne, another running back of mine, 21 fantasy points, touchdown. And he was chopping wood. That was a fourth quarter touchdown where you saw he was working hard all game. The offense was moving. They had the ball in the red zone multiple times. And it was just like, come on, man. One of these has to go to my guy. And eventually they did get E.T. in a tub. And he worked for it. He earned it. It was a 20 or so yard break. It was sort of the one that put the nail in in the Colts back or their coffin. Because that team came to play on Monday or on Sunday. 
and that defense came to play. But Jacksonville sort of, you know, kept putting them to the fire. Bijan Robinson dropped a dub in his debut. Was a big deal. And there was a lot of question marks around what is Atlanta? And I think going I don't think that they put definitive answers in that by any means because they gave the ball to Tyler Algier fifteen times and for sort of all the meaningful carries. And he walked away with two TDs, 24 points fantasy-wise. And guess what? Pollard, pardon me, Algier and Robinson were top seven running backs this week. Guess what? Algier will be off of waivers this week if he is still there. He's rostered in only 43% of leagues. So, if you have the chance to get him, you better do it, you know, or if you think you need him. We got to talk about these guys in L.A., whether that's Kyron Williams or Cam Akers. Because, again, we, we saw an offense that question marks in terms of how they'll move the ball, but if there's any success or consistency and you know, getting red zone opportunities just because you have a, a veteran quarterback or because you have skilled players on the outside that can get the ball down the field. If you can get this, you know, if your team can get in the red zone four, five, six times in the game, these running backs are going to eat because one of those is going to be a punch, whether that's to the bruiser back who's the backup or whether the starter finally, you know, gets the one that he worked hard for and it pays off that way. But running backs are still the backbone of fantasy, I believe. You know, Nick Chubb had 16. Decent, more than decent. Derrick Henry had sort of un- underwhelming game. Dropped 13.9. You know, you don't like to see that. But guess what? He did that. On only sixty rushing, on only sixty rushing yards, in a game where Tannehill kept giving the ball away, turnovers are a backbreaker as well for your offensive player in fantasy. Because if you're giving the ball away, guess what? That time of possession is going to lean heavily the other direction, and if you can't even get the ball for, for starters to build some momentum, you ain't gonna do nothing good in fantasy. That's not rocket science. So, yeah, that was definitely a bummer that Henry only got me 14 in that league. But guess what? That that's presents the floor of good running backs. Just because the team can't function because our you know quarterbacks just giving out turnovers, we're still running the offense through you, or you're going to get dedicated touches. And, and Henry was able to do that, and at least not put together a nine ball like Jamar Chase did or a zero like T Higgins, you know, running backs aren't really going to do that to you. So reminder again in week one that we just have to pay attention to going forward that, yeah, receivers are, you know, the fast car. They're definitely the, the, the flashy thing to have on your roster, but they're not the most reliable if you do get lucky and you struck and you got two great ones on your roster, I mean, hey, I like your odds every week too. Love what the projection says. But you can't always trust the projection. And uh, these running backs, just looking at how we're scoring these week two matchups. It's another week that leans in favor of the running backs. You know, if you ask me. 
there's a handful of guys, you know, hanging around the 20-point range in, in receivers, but I, I can't confidently tell you Jamar Chase is going to go off against Baltimore this week. Can't say with all confidence Tyreek Hill's going to go off against New England this week. I definitely can't say with all confidence that Justin Jefferson is going to go crazy against the Eagles on Thursday night. You know? I do think Devontae will have a good game against Buffalo on Sunday. Calvin Ridley showed up and said that he's here to play this year. They're playing Kansas City. I expect points to be scored. Fantasy-wise, real football-wise, and points will be moving on whatever the spread is that you bet. <laughs> CD Lamb has the Jets. Hey, we saw Stephon Diggs have great success, but we also saw that secondary have great success. So, uh, you know, don't fall in love with the projection for guys like CD Lamb. DK Metcalf, on the other hand, is playing Detroit. We didn't get to talk about Detroit in depth. Touched on them in the preview last episode, which was right on the heels of Thursday Night Football, but Detroit's still a confusing team. If anything, week one was an indication that they're not this drunk offense that's trying to throw the ball around like the greatest show on turf or like the Showtime Lakers. They definitely seemed like they had the makings of a good team overall. And, and I mean that with their sort of overall confidence and swagger and the play calling definitely suggested that this will be a balanced attack. We're going to take what you're going to give us. And that was, you know, pounding David Montgomery. That was mixing the back and giving the pop with Jameer Gibbs. And that was spreading the ball around to the pass catchers. And golf can do that. For sure. I don't think we're going to see the same thing with Detroit every week. Outside of the fact that Amon Ross St. Brown is, is going to probably get a more than 15 points because he just doesn't know how to not do that. But, you know, we might get a Gibbs multi-touchdown game. We might get a Montgomery multi-touchdown game. And we also, you know, they also might get smacked a couple times. But... All in all, you know, a lot of factors to weigh in when you're just looking at your roster and, and seeing what guys you want. Matchups are a big deal, though. Matchups are a big deal. I, I encourage you to do your due diligence and your research. And, I mean, ESPN makes it pretty easy for you. I, I don't do anything fancy. I, you know, follow these guys almost player by player on their recent reports. And then I do my best to also watch their games to say, hey, am I missing something here? And my perception of the role they're going to play in this offense, or do I see opportunity for them? And it's only a matter of fact of, you know, I'm playing the odds. If the odds are, are you know, good enough, I, I like to roll with the chances that eventually they're going to strike or they're going to, you know, have a, a high floor opportunity-wise. And on a good day, that's going to convert. That's going to convert handsomely. And week one, for the most part, that that was what I was, you know, lucky to have. Week two, I'll definitely be adjusting to, you know, the team I'm going against. Whether that means you got to, you know, play guys you're a little more unsure of, but you like the ceiling and you know you're playing a stacked roster. That could also mean, hey, I need to play it safe. And there's zags that I want to take this week, 
but I'd be really mad if I end up in another Sky Moore position, and that's what cost me a win. So let me play it safe, and that doesn't mean trust the projection. Uh, th that just means, you know, let, let me not shoot for the stars with my lineup because that, that could come back to bite you as well. So, man, lots to lots to try and recap right there with fantasy, and I did what I can for sure. But it was a fun fun week. It's fun to have the back. We live for the stressful calculations in the fourth quarters, and you know, in between Sunday night football and Monday night football, of okay, if my punter gives me thirty, or. <laughs> If some of these freak scenarios play out, I might have a chance, you know. But, yeah, man, we're, we're going to give you some more previews on Thursday. After Thursday Night Football, rather, on Friday morning. And uh, we'll leave you with something fantasy-wise going into week two later on in this week. But uh going to switch topics here, pivot, if you will, and talk international basketball. Because I did pay attention to... The medal games and the tournament overall as a whole, I did. It was easy for a lot of people to miss it, I'm sure. Watching games from midnight Pacific time to 6 in the morning Pacific time was a wild commitment to make. <laughs> Whatever time zone you're in in America, that's not a friendly one. But I'm a sucker for basketball, and, you know, you give me – compelling basketball to watch i'm gonna watch it i do this with soccer on a strict calendar i i you know pay attention loosely to club play and champions league and mls and all these other leagues but you give me a world cup a women's world cup or some olympic soccer and i will tune in buddy bet it i did it with the women's world cup still can't believe how Freaking, uh, was it Sweden? Can't believe how that ball bounced off the crossbar in uh, penalties. Hey, them girls got to regroup. But bringing it back to basketball, these fellas need to regroup because Team USA didn't even make the podium, folks, in the 2023 FIBA World Cup. And I am surprised. I would love to say I'm not surprised because, like I said, I paid attention and I watched these teams and I watched them play and had appreciation for the game and the tournament and said that these knockout games are going to be tough. But I still expected Team USA to, you know, not getting a medal at all is worse than I think they ever imagined what it was going to feel like coming home. And I think they went in there with almost no pressure just because this FIBA World Cup didn't have a magnifying glass on it in the media. You know, it was definitely overshadowed by football coming back, definitely overshadowed by college football, Colorado and Deion Sanders. You know, I think the, the tennis men's and women's opens just now got, got way more attention even than than that did, but... I had to watch it. I had to watch it because I, I was attached to this team since they'd had their trainings here in Vegas, talked with Terrell, talked with about roster construction as it was being put together because I wanted to have this international discussion. And if you've seen the reel that I posted, which is a flashback from episode 23, where it was me 
it was Shiv and it was Jacob Awada. And we really collectively hit the hammer on the nail with, with what might happen with this Team USA, you know, World Games experience. And it was that, guess what, guys? The rest of the league, the rest of the world can play some damn basketball. So don't show up here thinking that you're going to flip a switch and it's going to work because it didn't. Team USA got, got, got you know, their butts handed to them on several occasions in this tournament. Serbia, with no Jokic, gave the U.S. everything they could handle. Germany, in exhibition play, was up double digits in the fourth quarter against this team before they miraculously snuck a victory. Canada... So... Like I said, I watch these metal games and I'll just, you know, tip my cap, but I bet these games perfectly. Guess what? Uh, I made two tickets. One was a two-teamer of Canada covering plus 6 with the over of plus 185 or plus or uh 9 or 190, whatever it was. It was about a combined score. It was a score meaning both teams are going to have to crack 100 just about with 10-minute quarters and people play. I said that's easy as hell because these officials call basketball much more freely and there's less interruptions on these possessions. They're going to be getting the ball out of the net. They're going to be missing long rebounds. They're going to be getting up and down way more than they're used to in a 48-minute NBA regulation game because it's it's littered with whistles. And that was an easy over. They hit the over almost at the end of the third quarter. Then the game went to overtime. But... I bet Canada to cover the six because I said, man, this team USA has not proven to me that they can defend or rebound when it matters most. And I can see guys just hitting swing, swing, swing three consistently. I can see this Canada team living at the free throw line, which they did. And points will be scored. Team USA will not run away with this victory. And I felt good about it almost the entire game, except there was a stretch in the fourth where Team USA did grab the lead, but my my, my gut turned out to be correct because Canada answered, man. My, my recap from this tournament was that Shea, Gil- Shea Gilgis-Alexander played like a 99 overall on whatever two, whatever basketball game you're playing. He played in this tournament like he was a 99 overall. Because the offensive fluidity, the arsenal, the footwork, the separation, the shot making, the touch, the poise, man, it was just, he had the game in the palm of his hand against countless opponents. Every game they played, essentially. I don't have the FIBA stats on hand tell you exactly what they did but man this eye test was very very impressionable I can tell you what folks that there's a lot of hype around Anthony Edwards and that there will be a breakout year for him out of this experience I'm still a believer in that but 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 there was a trend throughout this tournament and 
it's a multiple things at play. For one, Team USA didn't have a guy that emerged as the clear-cut leader who was proven in that regard. Meaning career-wise, we've seen you lead a team to great success. We've seen you do this either on the international stage in college or in the NBA. We've seen you translate that in whatever capacity and have confidence that you will do it. We put a lot of hope in to Anthony Edwards just becoming him from this roster because this roster was missing a air quotes him. It wasn't a Brandon Ingram. We learned that quickly, unfortunately. And with Ant, there was a groundswell of just, you know, fan favoritism because we all love Anthony Edwards. And he was the leading scorer by far on this team. But it there was a, there was high volume shots being taken and guess what? If if we're, you know, unhappy with the outcome, it sort of does start at the top in terms of guys that are on the court because if Edwards is the guy and you're riding and dying with however, you know, this guy performs in that moment, he didn't get us there when we needed it. You know, he did have some comeback spots, but, you know, circling that Canada game, which meant a lot because we're getting USA and Canada with stakes representing the North American, you know, continent. And there's this hierarchy here in the States because, you know, the NBA is here and, you know, all these other guys from around the world are coming into the league. And then we see Canada have this groundswell of talent that we kind of hadn't seen within our generation, at least and the playing field sort of evened. And this, this trend was clear in the under 18 teams that, Hey, this is Canada young batch of guys, a, they're turning into some guys. So, we all wanted this to be the gold medal game. There was the chance for it to, and both teams got beat in the semis. Canada lost to Serbia, and the U.S. I mean, Canada lost to Germany, and the U.S. lost to Serbia. They lost to a Serbian team, guys, without Nikola Jokic. I flip flopped the teams. Pardon me. You're going to hear that wrong. Canada lost to Serbia, and U.S. lost to Germany. Because U.S. had the exhibition game where they barely, barely, barely hung on and came out and got the victory. That wasn't going to happen twice. They got smoked by Germany when it counted in the second game. And Canada lost to this Serbia team without Nikola Jokic. That's a big deal. Because that Canada team turned around and dropped 130 on USA. And it, it was clear to me at that point that, hey, yes, we, we didn't put you know the Avengers out there but still I'm not above the idea that a team of even you know better NBA talent might not fare flawlessly against the world now anymore because anything could happen now but guess what if that team is going to excel and, and max out it's going to be because they did so defensively you look at the dream team you look at the redeem team, the guys that were on that team, the 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 spirit and presence that was on that team. For one, it was built in practice because I know those were some wars and, and and real moments that 
turn those guys into the stars they were, you know, destined to become for the rest of their careers. But I'm sure it brought out just a competitive spirit and hunger and tenacity that you're going to need when you're facing these other teams and countries that are playing with their, just, you know, putting their hearts out on the court. And with Canada, it didn't feel like that. It felt like it was just another game because we're seeing so much NBA talent. And guess what? Team USA straight up lost. They got blessed with the chance that, you know, Michael Bridges hits this miraculous, intentionally missed free throw that he gets his own rebound on and drains the three in the corner for the four-point possession to send it to overtime. Honestly, one of the most wild moments I've ever seen live. And the the backpedal to the right corner was so reminiscent of Ray Allen that I just really, really, really wished the world was watching and that that game was for a gold and not for a bronze because that was an incredible moment. I think the announcers nailed it with the call. But that on, that's the only way they got this thing to overtime. If not, the lasting image of that game would have been Shea Gilgis hitting a step back, a cold mid-range step back over the hand of Michael Bridges. That was the dagger. That was the game winner. And Dylan Brooks, to that point, had already dropped about 30. And, man, it was a sign that, hey, guess what? It's not just Shea you got to worry about. Whoever gets to this t- to this final you know, elimination stage, they are going to have guys that can stretch the floor. They're going to have guys that know how to play as a team. And if you're going to beat them, Team USA, you're going to have to beat them because you can lock them up. This this current version, they were one of the announcers nailed this perfectly in the broadcast. But he said, "Hey, they're getting too comfortable trading baskets," and that's definitely what happened. They did that because they couldn't put their foot on them defensively. They couldn't just get in the pass lane and dictate that because the the, the pace is different. One of the big differences in this FIBA tournament is that the arc is not the NBA arc. That's a big deal because these guys are conditioned. It's muscle memory, how much space they have to cover or how much, you know, how wide the gap is on a drive when there's proper spacing in the NBA. But you're playing this international game where the the arc is shortened, the corner's closer, the top is closer. Guess what? The help defense you're looking at within that arc is much more – reminiscent of a college basketball half-court set than it is an NBA set. An NBA set feels so wide. It feels like it's so easy to get guys on an island to where the help just breaks down the defense and that you at least have an idea how you're going to attack it and break this defense down. But Team USA in this you know run, they didn't have the defensive chops to just dictate or impose themselves so offensively, they did, you know, what works in the NBA, this drive and kick sort of action, this constant, you know, driving motion. But it didn't work because rotations are slightly easier and the lane is slightly more compact, which makes a big difference when you also are throwing out small lineups. Where are the easy points coming from? Because the lane to attack 
it's not you're not getting a half step from a guy who's scared to abandon his guy in the corner because I can't recover. You're getting a you know decent show, but I'm sticking to the corner because our big can come to where I need him to be, and then the weak side guy really can play two men if he's in the right spot, or you know rotate on the ball to where you're moving. And now this driving motion isn't really penetrating. These paint touches aren't doing what you thought they were going to do. And that's just one, you know, real, real, real detail of how they played in these, you know, international rules and format that the NBA guys have to adjust to when they go over there. And and a lot of times the, the talent gap to the eye is just so wide that it doesn't really factor like that outside of the, the top-notch teams like the Spains of recent or the Australias of recent where it's like, yeah, they sort of even the playing field with these NBA guys talent-wise and team confidence-wise. That gap it has been nearly erased unless we're bringing the best of the best from America. And they understand the international play better than we do. So we've got the acclimating to do when, when, when this tournament pops off and we're not familiar playing these guys. We don't have the scouting report like we do in the NBA. So the guy we thought we could leave open, we can't leave him open. He's like that. So I hope that was their wake-up call. I think that those guys coming back to the NBA now are not going to be riding the high that we imagine they were. <laughs> I think it might have raised some questions about Jalen Brunson again. Jaron Jackson Jr., might I ask why you weren't playing in the bronze medal game? And that's a rhetorical question because I know the reason you actually weren't playing. I saw Team USA's tweet, which came out right before the game, that Paolo Boncaro... Jaron Jackson, and one other guy wouldn't be playing due to an illness. I, uh, I'm not going to question the validity of, of the report or, you know, ask them for a doctor's note. <laughs> but uh, I, didn't, I, I don't like that response, Jaron Jackson. I, I don't like that. That that's one of the things that I thought I was able to kind of come away from this experience being like, you know who really impressed me? Jaron Jackson. He was a beast defensively. He was all over the court. He was a monster. And he was one of the reasons Team USA did what they did. And that wasn't the case. He was highly active defensively, racked up a bunch of blocks. He also left his tournament averaging less than six rebounds. My, I, I want to say the number was four point something. And when he's getting asked about it and practice by the media after we lost our chance at gold, he's denying questions or declining to answer. Then I look up and he's not playing in the bronze medal game. And it's like, dude, like, I'm not here to to pick, you know, a bone or an argument with somebody, you know, because the guy was sick and he couldn't play. But that 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 response and that sequence of actions following the loss and having to sort of face the music and own up to it, 
I don't love the response of you not playing if you can because that gives me concern of, yep, this is going to be a guy that come playoff time. He's going to be in foul trouble or he, he's not ready to, to big boy pants battle on the block with the Anthony Davises, Nikola Jokic's of the, the league. And this isn't going to be a guy that can anchor a team in, in whatever capacity. Which I was, you know, at the beginning of the tournament, optimistic that, hey, I might come around on this guy. And and the little reservations I do have, I might, you know, flip completely because I was so sold on what he did. And it was would have been pretty easy for him to do that. But that last two games, the way this ended for him pushed me all the way back. To, to where I did feel where I was like, okay, you know, I I see the talent with this guy. I, I see what, what overall is being offered. You know, he stretches the floor, great rim protector, can't teach these kind of things. But those are red flags, man. They're, they're red flags for me. But thankfully, he's not the leader of that team. That's John Morant. And they're going to get job back in Memphis this year. It won't be their Christmas, but they'll get a Christmas present from a good old St. Nick. I do like what it did for Austin Reeves. I think he got, I think he realized even more so. He wasn't short on confidence, but he realized that, hey, mother effort, when Team USA needed a bucket, they looked to me on occasion. That will do a lot for that guy's confidence coming back. I feel good about that as a Laker fan. I think guys like, Bridges overall, it, it confirmed what I did think about Bridges, and that's that, you know, he's a guy I would just love to have on my team. I would love to play with. He's just one of those guys. You, you're never going to – it's it's not a really about what he does for you statistically, what he does for you, you know, on the court with the eye test. But there's so many just intangible things that Mark Howe Bridges is a good player at where that's that you're going to get great return on investment with him. Halliburton showed in flashes that, yeah, he, he's still the real deal as well, but I think that he was really limited by playing this six-man role behind Brunson. The decision to give Brunson more trust in Halliburton in this format, in this league, in this tournament, I would have fought heavily. And that's the decision that Team USA made. For me, the length that Halliburton gave you, the defensive upside, the unselfishness, that's what would have helped this this Team USA roster a lot if he was if the ball was in his hands on offense a lot more. Or if he was the one dictating the flow and not Brunson, who we know, you know, is a dribbler and doesn't have the best shot selection. But hey, Team USA struck out. Now get your uh, get your butts back here, and, and now you don't woke up the big dogs for the Olympics next year because they looked at little bro and said, "You know what, little bro, you're not you're not quite ready yet." Now let me show you how it's done. So the world the world is on notice. Paris 2024, you're going to get a real Team USA in the Olympics, and it might not be pretty. I'm saying it now. Finally, I'm going to leave out of here just talking a little bit of wrestling because 
Friday Night Smackdown, we had a meaningful, meaningful, meaningful interaction between Paul Heyman and LA Knight. And I told you guys, Paul Heyman said this on TV and whatever he says on TV that he's not wasting words. He said on the island of Reven on the island of relevancy to Sami Zayn that you always have to be three steps ahead. He said that at the beginning of the year when Sammy was still a part of the bloodline, and I've never forgotten it. Because at that point I said, okay, what Heyman does on care on camera is indicative of where this is going. And shout out to Sam Roberts because he does such a great job of, of just getting really, really deep into the minutia of the wrestling product. And he, and he tells it so descriptive and, you know, it's thought-provoking and he does a great job at his, at his pod. He brought up the fact that the Friday before last, Paul Heyman unnecessarily and unprovoked made fun of the L.A. Knight character. He did, you know, oh, yeah, and all that type of stuff in the high-pitched voice, really, really mocking L.A. Knight. And as he did that, I did, you know, it, it triggered something inside, but I didn't, I didn't stick with that on that episode of SmackDown after the fact. I pretty much forgot about it until Sam Roberts brought it back up. But Friday night, I knew for, without a shadow of doubt, that his interaction with L.A. Knight was something, something serious. And <laughs> now, looking back at his first interaction, it, it's just great to see Paul Heyman just continue to be at the top of his game and unmatched when it comes to this managerial role because he's backstage. He gets cut off by a, a very mad L.A. Knight in the middle of talking to whoever was back there. Maybe it was Kathy Kelly. Maybe it was Caleb Braxton. Caleb Braxton is Paul's best friend, we know. But L.A. Knight and Heyman get face-to-face. Heyman says to him, really snarky, hey, you know what, man? I'm a big fan. I love the gimmick. Yeah, this and that. Yeah. When just one week prior, he was behind closed doors but on camera like, why are they really trying to be fans of this L.A. Knight guy? He is a flash in the pan. He was hating L.A. Knight the week before. But when he sees him in his face, he says, hey, I'm a big fan. And he, he, he sort of chummies it up with him before L.A. Knight just delivers the best, yeah, we've probably ever heard from him yet on camera because Heyman says, hey, you know, you need to watch yourself. You don't interrupt me. You dig L.A. Knight? backs Heyman down with a close stare face-to-face, and he just says, yeah. And they walk away. They they show L.A. Knight's face as uh, Heyman exits camera, and he just does his little face twitch. It was perfect. But that was another indication that L.A. Knight is going places as far as the universe will go with him. Because this is WWE week to week still putting their toe in the water in terms of what they're going to do, whether that's for Roman, whether that's for LA Knight. 
but it's it's based off of what happens at each checkpoint. And last week it was the you might miss this seed that we're planning by Heyman mocking LA Knight leading up to this past Friday where they did go face to face. And so far we can only speculate at where this may end. But I tell you what, if this continues to go in the direction that it has for the past two, three months now with LA Knight, really the whole year since he dropped the Max Dupree gimmick, and Roman needs a challenger or two until we get to Mania. If the groundswell and and real authentic support for LA Knight continues, he will get a world title opportunity. And will he beat Roman Reigns? Hell no. But he will get to the main event scene in due time against the bloodline because that was honestly great what I saw between Paul and LA Knight. And Roman, whenever he returns, which I'm looking forward to now, usually <clears throat> SmackDown just jumps the gun and they, they'll they put, you know, the Romans returning graphic up to tease to the next week when he's only been gone for like two, three weeks. But it feels like Roman isn't coming back still anytime soon. So when he does, I don't think there's going to be anybody next to him. Even AJ Styles, who it's his next feud is lining up to be. I don't think there will be anybody that's going to get the reaction outside of Cody that L.A. Knight will in a ring with Roman Reigns. And that's going to earn him a shot. It's going to earn him the moment. He's doing big business for the company, merchandise-wise. He's, you know, stepping up to the plate to do this character work on camera so that the audience can grow with him and get attached to him along the way. And <clears throat> WWE knows what they're doing. They they tried their best to dictate how the Daniel Bryan situation would go. And once they just had to say, hey, okay, fine. We'll, we'll buy in as well. They did that. But I think that they realized that can happen again. But we want to get ahead of the fallout or the pushback if it doesn't go according to the fans, you know, wishes. Meaning... They, you know, L.A. Knight loses some support. They're just trying to make sure that if this happens, this guy is as, you know, big as possible before and after. Even bigger, you know. So, uh, I'm very, very excited about what we're going to get. I think that we're setting up teases for war games that will include either faction warfare between the bloodline and the Judgment Day. Or it, it will, you know, be some version of another thing to remember. And this is the last thing. Leading up to WrestleMania, the Bloodline and the Judgment Day shared a ring together on a Monday Night Raw. And it was sort of a big deal. Sort of a big deal. Just without them even saying anything, we didn't know what was going to happen. But wait a second. These two paths don't cross. And, and in that lead up to WrestleMania where there was the Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn problem, the Cody Rhodes problem. On that episode of Raw, the Bloodline and the Judgment Day 
made this sort of peace treaty to work together, you know, sort of under the premise of the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And that was also sort of brokered by Paul Heyman. So I could see a scenario where the bloodline and the judgment day sort of do take care of each other. But it all, you know, blows up at war games, whether that's as opponents or as a turn during the match. Because at this time, the format for that is still up in the air. But I think that right now they are building out what they want to be the war games payoff one way or another. So that's something to look forward to. Watch the product. You know what I mean? Leave the show a review and a rating because that covers it, folks. We, we got in what we wanted. We, we talked fantasy a good deal. We talked Team USA a good deal. And I got a nugget of wrestling in there that I wanted to. We're going to, you know, be back on Friday for sure with, with more of all of this as well. We might have even a special guest on here. Stay tuned as always. But we appreciate you all for listening, folks. Give the show a review. Helps us out a lot. And with that being said, till next time, folks.